0: Here's what's coming up in this very important episode of the Summit for Wellness podcast.
1: The thing about being a vegan is that it's not just what you eat, it really becomes who you are. And what that means is anything that throws up a challenge to your kind of ideological framework is felt as a threat to yourself. And that means you really can't engage with new information. And that information may be, gosh, my health is failing pretty abysmally, or it may be, wow, maybe agriculture is not actually the way forward for humans or the planet. I mean, there's any number of things that you may discover either experientially or in, or intellectually that are going to challenge this, this framework. You know, the problem is there are massive deficiencies in this plant-based diet as well. And, for, my, for me, I would say by the three-month mark, I was starting to feel it. I was already having really bad hypoglycemic incidents. Um, I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it was called. Um, I just knew that I would have these tremendous times of feeling not quite hungry, but like I had to eat or I was going to die, and it was my blood sugar had dropped too low. So I kept having to just kind of snack all the time and you know, put food in my mouth. And by the time I was done being a vegan, it was just semi-constant. And this is true for a lot of people who take up these diets. You just you, you blow through your insulin receptors. This is also very common among vegans. You're going to find joint problems in very, very young people. You know, your joints are really supposed to last for most of your life. If you're 80 years old, that's one thing. But at age 18 or 20, you're not supposed to have hips and knees and you know spines that hurt. It's supposed to be in really good shape at that point. Um, and the other very helpful thing that I want to throw in here is that if we could repair even um, 75% of the world's grasslands, um, and they've been trashed by agriculture, let's be clear. But if we could do the repair, you know, get the perennial grasses back and the large ruminants, you know, there's giant herds of ruminants that should be roaming those grasslands. If we could get everything back in place the way that it wants to be, within 15 years we could actually drop um, the carbon to 330 parts per million, which is way under that 350 red line. Welcome to the Summit for Wellness podcast, where we help you climb to the peak of your health. And now, here is your host, Brian Carroll.
0: Welcome back everyone. We have an important episode for you today and it is all around this latest buzzword that's going around and it is plant-based diets. Uh, It seems like everybody is starting to go on plant-based diets and there's so much information coming out about them. So what I want to do is shed some light on what a plant-based diet is, whether it's actually healthy for you and um what could happen if you stay on a plant-based diet for an extended period of time. So I brought on the author of The Vegetarian Myth, and her name is Lear Keith, so that we can talk about it. Um, and in her book, she goes into great details about um, the impact of vegetarianism and veganism and what... Um, probably way more than we actually go into in this episode. So if you want to learn even more, then I highly recommend uh, getting her book, The Vegetarian Myth. We definitely tap into a lot of different areas with veganism and vegetarianism, including the morals behind um, why people become vegans. Uh, we go into agriculture and how agriculture might not be as it seems and how much damage uh, monocrop agriculture can actually cause. And uh, we also briefly touch about um, animal farming practices and how that could be uh, better than how a lot of the capos are set up currently. Um, so stay tuned and listen to this episode with Lear Keith, uh, but before we jump in, We just launched um, one of our big projects, which is our app that is available on um, iOS and Android. So if you go into your app store and look for the Summit for Wellness app, then you can download our app for free. With our app, you will have access to all of our content in a much simpler and faster way. Um, So you'll have access to our recipes, our workouts, our podcasts, um, any other content that we will release, you'll be the first ones to see it. Um also there's uh specific portals in there if you are a current client of Summit Integrated Wellness that would have all your personal information right there so that um your protocols and everything are really easy to access. So for the first uh 100 people who download our app you will automatically be entered in um a giveaway for your choice of either an Instant Pot or a $75 Amazon gift card. And if you're within the first 200 who download the app, you will be entered in for a $50 Amazon gift card. So go ahead and download the app now. Okay, let's get right to the episode as we talk with Lier Keith. Lierre Keith is a writer, radical feminist, food activist, and environmentalist. She wrote the highly acclaimed book, The Vegetarian Myth, food, justice, and sustainability, which is what we will be talking a lot about today. Thank you, Lierre, for coming onto the show.
1: Well, thank you for having me on.
0: I'm really excited to have you on the show today because um, lately there's been an overwhelming amount of discussions popping up about the plant-based diet movement. Um, Mm -hmm. It seems like it's really picking up momentum again, so I think it's something that we need to take a little deeper look at and to discuss more about. So. I know that you didn't just delve into veganism, it wasn't something that you did for a couple months and then you left. Uh, You spent some time as a vegan. Can you talk about just your history as a vegan, how long you were one, and um, just some of the stuff that it impacted within your life? Sure. So
1: I was a vegan almost 20 years. I almost hit the 20-year mark when I stopped. That's a long time, that's two decades, and it was plenty of time to see all the damage that this diet will inevitably do to the human body uh, if you try it long-term. I I mean, I think you can do anything for a few years, especially if you're under 30, but eventually the rubber hits the road and you are on nutritional drawdown. It simply is not an appropriate diet for the long-term maintenance and repair of the human body. As I found (laughs) to my sorrow, it just doesn't work.
0: Yeah, so 20 years is a long time. It seems like most vegans, don't last more than a year to uh, half a decade, maybe. At Actually, the, most. the
1: average vegan lasts three months.
0: Three months, wow. So what kept you going on that path as a vegan?
1: What kept me on that path? Well, the thing about being a vegan is that it's not just what you eat, it really becomes who you are. And what that means is anything that throws up a challenge to your kind of ideological framework is felt as a threat to yourself. And that means you really can't engage with new information. And that information may be, gosh, my health is failing pretty abysmally. Or it may be, wow, maybe agriculture is not actually the way forward for humans or the planet. I mean, there's any number of things that you may discover either experientially or, in, or intellectually. That are going to challenge this this framework, but when you're a vegan, it's really hard to absorb it You just you can't engage because it's too threatening and I certainly experienced that and I think most vegans do so there's that you, you end up in this very sort of fundamentalist mindset where um, Anything sort of outside the circle of what's acceptable um, Just you just can't you can't touch it. So there was this terrible angel that I wrestled for 20 years because I still was somebody who kept trying to gather information about you know the really dire straits that our planet is in and what has caused this what's the problem what have we done and why and ultimately the answer is really agriculture agriculture is how we've destroyed the planet. I mean, we've had 10,000 years and we've trashed the place, and it was agriculture that's done that. But as a vegan, of course, you can't you can't face that because you think you found a solution in agricultural foods and it turns out it's not the solution. So that was, you know, back and forth for me for two decades. I couldn't handle it and then I kept wanting to read about it and then I kept trying my own experiments and then I would read more about it and then I would, you know, back away from it because I couldn't stand it. Um, so there was that and then also um, it's it can be a very cult-like experience all your friends are vegans your whole social network is vegans Um, and everybody around you is not a vegan wants to be a vegan is trying to be a vegan so everybody thinks this is you know the truth the life the way and it's very hard because when you leave that world you will lose some of your friends there's all kinds of people who will hate you who once upon a time you thought were your lifelong buds and they're not so that's also really hard and I think a lot of people that's half the battle for a lot of people I mean I get these emails all the time and it's very painful um to have something just you know like your diet get in the way of really profound friendships and even marriages relationships break up over this which tells you how crazy it kind of is I mean that should not get in the way of somebody's primary relationship and yet it does
0: Right. Um, can you talk about what age you became a vegan?
1: Yeah, I was 16, which is actually pretty typical. It's a lot of teenagers, and especially teenage girls, who, who try this. And the vegans know this. They're People like PETA, you know, those big animal rights groups, they target teenage girls because they know that's who their natural audience is. So it's very typical. Um, and the way that I became a vegan is also very typical. I met another teenage girl. And her family, they were all vegans. So she had all the facts and figures and pictures and just the horrible information about factory farming, which should move all of us. I mean, that's pretty dreadful stuff. Um, But all I knew was what she was telling me was that the way out of this was to become a vegan. I had no other information about food, about farming, about topsoil, about nature, about anything. I grew up in a very you know, sort of urban, suburban environment. I did not have a clue. I'd never even seen a broccoli plant. I mean, I had no idea what I was eating. Um, So, you know, when they come along with a complete and total program, if you just do this one simple thing, you can save your health, you can save animals, you can save hungry people, you can save the planet. This is incredibly appealing to anyone who is an idealistic, angry young person, which I was. And, So it spoke to me very deeply, like, wow, this is so easy. I can fix everything that's wrong with the world if I just do this one thing. So within two weeks, I was utterly convinced.
0: So for a lot of people coming into um, veganism, they do start to feel really good for the first couple months or maybe it's only a couple weeks. Um, And then things start to change. What kind of health issues did you end up running into and how long did it take before you started to notice that the health, uh, that you had wasn't going the direction that you were hoping
1: I think a lot of people feel better at first because um, I think I don't I mean I don't know hundred percent on this but I think most people who take this up um, they stop eating junk food right away you know when, when they take up a vegan diet so there's a lot of crap they take out of their diets and that certainly helps that's going to help anybody but you know the problem is there are massive deficiencies in this plant-based diet as well and For for me, I would say by the three-month mark, I was starting to feel it. I was already having really bad hypoglycemic incidents. Um, I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it was called. Um, I just knew that I would have these tremendous times of feeling not quite hungry, but like I had to eat or I was going to die, and it was my blood sugar had dropped too low. So I kept having to just kind of snack all the time, you know, put food in my mouth. So the problem with these high-carbohydrate diets is that they dem- it demands a tremendous amount of insulin every time you eat. And our bodies were just not cut out for that. You know, we're, we're not meant to be eating that load of sugar every day. And so what happens is then your pancreas has to release all this insulin to get your blood sugar back down. Um, but the problem is that insulin is a very blunt instrument. Um, clearly, we were not meant to handle this load of sugar because your pancreas will, will overproduce insulin then, and then insulin runs through your bloodstream as fast as it can, and it shoves everything into your blood cells just to clear that sugar out, it's grabbing everything right and left and just shoving it into your cells for storage. Um, the, the reason is because your brain especially can only function within a very narrow range of sugar. If it's too high or too low, um, you can fall into a coma and die I mean it's this is a biological emergency and that's the only mechanism we have to clear it so too much insulin then it grabs too much shoves it out of your bloodstream now your blood sugar is too low and this is why everybody who eats these high carb diets ends up with blood sugar problems it's this constant roller coaster of too low too high too low when it's too low you're desperate to get food in your mouth you'll feel better for maybe half an hour and then it starts all over again It's too high, so now you get the insulin surge, then it's too low, so you have to eat again. But all you're eating is carbohydrates, so now it's too high again. And this goes on all day long. And you feel terrible through all of it. There's a tremendous tremendous amount of um, adrenaline that's also released in this process. So you're constantly keyed up, anxious, angry, all of that from having this blood sugar swing. So this is a lot of the emotional problems that you see with people who are on these kinds of diets as well and I certainly experienced that too. So I was uh, within three months I was already getting all this with the blood sugar problems, but I didn't know what it was and I had no language to describe it I just started eating more. So it was sort of the semi-constant snacking which a lot of people get into when they're in these diets Um, So there was that and then um, pretty quickly on I also stopped menstruating and that's pretty common for women who eat any kind of low-fat diet Um, and one of the reasons for that is that the um, Cholesterol is actually the mother hormone. I know cholesterol has been horribly vilified over the last, you know, 20-30 years But it's an incredibly life-affirming substance It, it cholesterol does so many things for so many parts of your body like every cell in your body the membrane around your cells is made of cholesterol. So it gives us structural stability. If you were to suck all the cholesterol out of your body in a second, you would be a puddle on the floor. There'd be nothing to you but water and bone, okay, that'd be it. So that's what, you know, cholesterol just does this amazing, these amazing things for us. Um, but one thing is it's also the mother hormone. So all of your hormones are made from cholesterol. And when you're not eating any, you just, you simply can't produce enough. We need way more than our bodies can make. So your body will say, all right, well, I need to keep you alive. And these are, these are the, the moment to moment life functions that I'm going to send the cholesterol there to take care of that. So we're still alive at some point in the future. When nutrition improves and we have some more cholesterol, I will then send some off to your reproductive organs and and you know make your hormones again, and we'll talk about having a baby then. But for now, I'm just going to keep you alive. So your body does that kind of triage and sends it away from um, you know the sort of non-essential functions like reproduction. So that's why this is this is precisely why you know a lot of women end up with all kinds of fertility issues where when they're on any kind of high-carb, low-fat diet. So that happened to me. Um, of course, nobody knew why because doctors have no training in nutrition. Nobody once asked me, well, what do you eat? Which I just find astounding now, but that was the case. So that happened. Um, within two years of being a vegan, I started to develop very severe joint problems. Um, I have degenerative disc disease. And I will say that at age 18, people's spines aren't supposed to fall apart for no reason. So when you know an orthopedist looks at my MRI, my x-rays, you know their first thought is, well, you were in a horrible car accident when you were young. And no, I was not. And then they said, did, did you fall off a roof? I mean, what happened to you? This is horrible. And what I did was the nutritional equivalent um, by being a vegan. So this is also very common among vegans. You're going to find joint problems in very, very young people. You know, your joints are really supposed to last for most of your life. If you're 80 years old, that's one thing. But at age 18 or 20, you're not supposed to have hips and knees and, you know, spines that hurt. It's supposed to be in really good shape at that point. And instead, you know, I was drawing down all of the nutrients that are needed for basic joint health. So that happened. And that's permanent. That's one of those things that you don't get back. If you wear your joints, they're gone. So I did that. Um, I also had just that very typical... That whole constellation of anxiety, depression, insomnia, very, very typical amongst people who eat low-fat diets, vegan diets in particular, um, and that's very hard to deal with, and I lived in that world for 20 years and really had no idea what I had done to myself. It wasn't until I started eating actual fat on a daily basis that you know the world really just goes from black and white to color, and you just feel so much better so quickly, um, and I yeah, it's just, it's a terrible thing. And I had gotten so many emails from so many people in that situation. Like they know that they don't feel the way they should. They know they can compare notes from five years ago, 10 years ago. I used to be a happy person. Now I can barely get out of bed. And it's, you know, they're sort of faced, they're up against the wall in terms of, you know, this ideology is failing me. This diet is failing me, but what do I do now? And it's a very hard moment, but, um, you know, we, we have a birthright that's about that kind of radiant health and that includes our mental health and our emotional health as well and that just can't be satisfied by eating a plant-based diet so that was the major stuff i did to myself i mean there's some minor things too but you know some you do it long enough that stuff is permanent
0: so uh, while your health was going south and all these issues were starting to come up, at any point, did you think, oh, I just need to be stricter with my diet and all these problems will go away? Or does that thought not even cross your mind?
1: Oh, no, I, I thought that. And so many people who are in that kind of vegan world, especially the raw vegan world, will do that. The worse you feel, the more you decide, oh, I just have to be better at it. And so you double down, and you pull all your vegan books off the shelf, and you read them all over again, and you, you decide, oh, I must feel terrible because you know last month I ate a bite of cream cheese, and um, that's why I feel so terrible because I'm not doing it strictly enough. Um, and that's, I mean, that's the reason we have this phrase, cognitive dissonance, is because there were people in a cult who were told that uh, flying saucers were going to come from Mars or someplace, and they were going to. Sweep them all away and take them here and there and whatever. And, and they all believed it. This was in the 50s. And there was this, this woman who ran this cult. And, of course, on the appointed day, nobody came from outer space to, to meet them and greet them. And instead of deciding, you know, maybe this wasn't actually true, they all decide, no, 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 we just didn't do it right. We didn't believe enough. We didn't do what we were told correctly. And so they all just recommitted to it. Uh, even more strongly and usually there's a purge and they get rid of people who they think don't believe But that's very typical for this sort of cult-like behavior And it's absolutely what I did and I know so many people who did exactly that So if the veganism isn't working, it's because you need to be a raw vegan And if the raw vegan isn't working, it's because you're not raw enough And if it still isn't working, it's because you need to be a fruitarian And when you're really falling apart from that, it's because you need to be a breatharian and at that point you really do die so <laughs> <laughs> That's the way it goes. It's of a- kind of a scary trajectory for a lot of us. And if you're that kind of a fanatic, which
0: I was, um, you can end there. So earlier you mentioned that your menstrual cycle, um, stopped after a few months of being vegan. Mm -hmm. And uh, just a couple months ago, there was, um, a really popular vegan YouTuber that was coming out and saying to her millions of followers that, uh, menstrual cycles are unclean and it means you're unhealthy and that she's completely, um, gotten rid of her menstrual cycle by being vegan and someone with that many followers that can cause a lot of damage to just the, the social population that we have um, from all the people that you've talked with in the vegan world is this a pretty common issue uh, not having your menstrual cycle on a regular basis or is this kind of a, a fluke type incident?
1: no it's very very common for any woman who eats a low-fat diet and doesn't have enough cholesterol in her diet your body will shut that down and instead you know just divert all your cholesterol to sort of moment-to-moment life functions that you need to stay alive so that's as female athletes are known for cessation of menstruation for that reason as well they don't have enough body fat to menstruate and so that's what your body does in response. Um, it's not healthy. <laughs> you're supposed to be menstruating if you're an adult human female. That's what we've been doing for millions of years. It's how our reproduction works. We don't have heat. We don't have a season. You know, we don't go into estrus once a year like other animals. We've got this other thing we do, which means we're fertile all year round. You know, the human beings decided a long time ago that was a better reproductive strategy, um, but it means that women menstruate. So that's just what happens you can't keep all that fertile lining um fresh you know it's it it's only good for so long and then you have to shed it and build another one and that's what menstruation is it's just you know keeping the womb healthy for a baby having all those nutrients in place for it and then when there isn't a baby it just you know you eject it and then you start over again and that's for whatever reason like that was the way evolution went with humans so there's it's just profound misogyny really for anybody to come out and say that this is dirty or unclean or all that it's we're just right back into the sort of basic patriarchal religion you know these religions that say that you know women are unclean or dirty or you know somehow not worthy of God or not worthy to be priests or all that kind of stuff and it always comes down to that like the female body's not good enough never mind it's our original home right (laughs) this is the thing we should be thankful for on a really profound level you know but that's it's just really sad when women are out there saying the same thing Um, I said that when I was 18 or 19 I remember I mean I got it from other vegans and it makes you feel superior and It's just not, it's self hating and it's woman hating. And I really wish that women were not encouraging other women on this path of self-destruction because it's not helping any of us.
0: Right. So you also mentioned that uh, a typical vegan is a, a high carb, low fat diet. Is there any cases of veganism where people are focusing more on avocado fats and coconut fats and trying to maintain a higher fat vegan diet? And if so, do you know um, if those type of people are still running into the same type of health issues or not?
1: You know, coconut oil, avocado oil... um... Those are certainly better choices than, say, canola or soy oil or corn oil. Um, monounsaturates are way better than the polyunsaturates. You really should not be eating discrete polyunsaturated fats. It's just not a good idea. Um, so monounsaturates are better, but honestly, we need saturated fat. We need and we need animal-based saturated fats. The thing that you're going to get out of animal fats that you cannot get out of any uh, vegetable plant-based fat is vitamin A and vitamin D. Uh, they plants don't need them and they don't make them so and I know people think oh carrots or whatever it's not true what they make is a kind of proto vitamin A Um, humans have to convert that to actual vitamin A that we need and a lot of people simply can't do it it's even for very healthy people it's a hard process you need about eight units of the one to make one unit of, of usable vitamin A for human beings but there are human beings that simply cannot even do that conversion and it's genetic. If you come from a coastal or island people that ate a lot of seafood, you may not make the enzyme anymore that does that conversion. So you may not be able to make any vitamin A on your own, no matter how much protovitamin A you eat, no matter how much of the base substance you get, you're not gonna get actual vitamin A. And these are people who will eventually die if they don't get any actual vitamin A Um, and they're called obligate carnivores and it's some humans simply are that without that enzyme it's it's over so um, it's something to think about I have certainly met people who feel that they they are those people they got so sick um, not not eating you know when they ate a vegan diet uh, from the lack of vitamin A so that's a real thing and then vitamin D as well uh, you can only get from animal fat and there are no vegetable sources for these. There's no there's no plant based sources for those. So, you know, I I would certainly say for somebody anybody who's uh, worried about their health, not sure if being a vegan is working out anymore, definitely start eating coconut oil right away because it's a very healing substance. It's got a lot of really good stuff in it that you are in short supply, you know, in 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 our diets. But you ultimately you really are going to have to eat animal fats. That's that's really the the heart of the you know the matter it's just we evolved eating those fats and they're they're just so good for us on so many levels there's so many so they're so nutrient dense with the things that humans need
0: so for some people um if they want to get animal products into their body but still kind of maintain this vegan path For the majority of people, can they be vegetarian and have some animal-based products such as eggs or dairy or um, fish? Or do you still run into a lot of health issues even on that type of path?
1: You're going to be able to extend it a lot longer than if you're a vegan because at least you've got some eggs, You know, there's some dairy products. So you're going to get some vitamin D, some vitamin A, some cholesterol, but it's honestly not enough. And you're still going to be eating way too many carbohydrates. That's just not the diet that we were meant to eat. So you might be able to limp along for, you know, a few decades doing that, but ultimately you're going to end up with the same blood sugar problems, and you're still on nutritional drawdown. Um, we we really need to be eating a much more nutrient dense kind of diet, and this just is evolutionarily kind of, you know, we this is where history has brought us. You know, it really it's. We might wish that life was different, but I mean this has been what we've been eating for two and a half million years and It's really interesting to study the evolution of humans and how we got these gigantic brains because our brains are huge right and it it was this really kind of awesome feedback loop where The better tools meant we had more nutrient-dense food i.e more animals which means our brains got even bigger but with bigger brains, we made even better tools. And that meant even more nutrient dense foods. And what that meant was even bigger brains. So in a very, very short period of time, um, the human brains, it's, they call it encephalization when it's uh, just fattening up essentially. But that process happened um, with that feedback loop. And at the same time, our digestive tr- tracts shrank. And so that's called the expensive tissue hypothesis. So you can't have both of those things going on at once, right? The brain is getting really big, it's got these incredible energy demands, and yet our digestive tract is getting smaller. So how are we feeding these gigantic brains? Well, we're doing it by eating the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet. And what we're eating are organ meats from large ruminants. And we're also eating brains of other animals, which are super nutrient dense. And that was how we became human. I mean, that's the archaeological record right there. And I'll also add to this, which I find very kind of awe inspiring, that the first thing we did with those giant human brains was say thank you, right? We developed religion and art almost overnight. And what did we draw? What did we paint? What did we sculpt? you see it, it's the the megafauna and the mega females. It's the people who gave us life. That's why we're here, that's what made us human. And the moment that our brains got big enough to be conscious of that, the first thing we did was show some reverence and some awe toward the beings that gave us life. And I think that's incredible, that that sense of awe and thanksgiving is built into us, kind of body and brain. But, you know, that's just the beauty of that artwork from the Paleolithic people, the cave art and the carvings. And they're just amazing what, what we did when we first made art. But that's why. is because we had these giant brains and we got those giant brains by eating animals. So a vegetarian diet just isn't going to meet the nutritional needs of the human template. You know, it's it's we're too far from that. You know, it's we've been eating very nutrient-dense foods for way too long. So I'll give you a couple statistics here. Um, The Oxford Brain Study is the famous study, and they followed people for five years. There were omnivores, there were vegetarians, and there were vegans. And over a five-year period, um, the omnivores' brains stayed pretty much the same size. These were elderly people. Um, The vegans did absolutely the worst, hands down. Their brains shrunk by 5% over five years. They lost 5%. One twentieth of their brains this is an organ two and a half million years in the making and by eating a vegan diet for five years that's how much of their brains they lost vegetarians did a tiny bit better but not too much better um, in fact the smallest brain of the omnimore was bigger than the largest brain of the vegan in the study so that's what happens over time um, you know you can also look at so what happened to human beings as a whole when some of them took up agriculture and this is true universally. Um, agriculture started in about 14 places around the globe. And you see the same pattern. So people are super healthy as hunter-gatherers. They're, they're tall. They're strong. Their bones are disease-free. They've got all their teeth. They have low infant mortality. Um, they're doing really well. And any archaeologist can pick up a bone and tell you in five seconds whether it was a hunter-gatherer or whether it was an agriculturalist. Because the first thing that happens when people take up agriculture, these plant based diets, um, they shrink six inches and their teeth fall out, and their bones are riddled with diseases. Diseases that are never seen in hunter gatherers. A lot of it's about uh, mineral deficiencies, especially the um, iron deficiency anemia, which is simply non existent in hunter gatherers. And we have a phrase for this we call it the diseases of civilization and it's the heart disease, it's diabetes, it's cancer, all the autoimmune diseases, um, and all of this is because all of a sudden people switched, started feeding their bodies completely the wrong food, you've got all this excess sugar, you've got all these deficiencies on the other end, And what happens is the same thing over and over, the diseases of civilization. So it's a noted phenomenon. It even has a name because it's that much of a pattern. And it's the same the world over. When people take up agriculture, human health declines precipitously. It's also the first time in history, human history, when you see hunger is institutionalized. There may have been periodic moments of hunger, but you don't see institutionalized starvation. That only comes with agriculture. So. Nothing went well after we started doing agriculture. It's backbreaking labor. Farmers work from dawn to dusk. The only way to have any leisure time is to have slaves. So it's the beginning of slavery. It's the beginning of militarism. Like all these terrible things happen to human health, to human society. Never mind the planet. Um, it's just been a disaster for 10,000 years. And the real question is like can we back up and take a look at it and decide to do something better? because it really has not worked out.
0: Yeah, and now that you're talking about agriculture, which you talk about a lot in your book, let's go into um, kind of the vegan mindset with agriculture, right? So a lot of people think that we're able to grow a lot of crops and that it's better for the environment and you're not um, killing innocent lives in the process of it, but that's not really true, is it?
1: So you have to understand what agriculture is. In very brute terms, you take a piece of land— you clear every living thing off it, and I mean down to the bacteria, and then you plant it for human use. So it's biotic cleansing. We, we've heard of ethnic cleansing. This is even worse because it's everything, right? There's nothing gets to live there except like the one or two things that humans would like to be there. So it's corn or wheat or soy, or you know pick your annual monocrop, and that's what you see for miles and miles and miles. And we have literally skinned the planet alive. It's mass extinction because all those plants and animals have nowhere to go. At this point in the history of agriculture, we are now losing 200 species a day to extinction. That's how much land humans have taken over. vertebrate evolution has come to an absolute halt because there's not enough space for them. This is simply because humans have taken what is not ours. We have taken over every last square inch that could have been dedicated to humans, we've essentially taken. There's nothing left. And we are now at the cliff because by 1950, the world was out of topsoil. By doing this process, agriculture, you inevitably destroy the soil. There's no way around that. Um, And by 1950, we'd pretty well skinned the planet alive what we've been eating since then is fossil fuel so this process called the hopper bosch process was developed um, which essentially takes very cheap fossil fuel as a feedstock and they can make usable nitrogen for plants out of it and all of this means is that since 1950 we've been eating oil and gas and that's what's been keeping human population at the levels that it's at but I mean if anybody actually thinks this is sustainable they're kind of crazy because eventually the oil and the gas are going to run out too. These are not things we can, you know, they don't drop off of trees. I mean it's, you know, we're digging them out of the ground. We're essentially hunting and gathering, but what we're hunting and gathering isn't food, it's fossil fuel instead. And you know, there's a limited amount of it and you know eventually that's that's going to be the end. So So that's what agriculture is. And the problem is that most of us don't know that. And we don't know it because we're not farmers. Um, Less than 2% of the population of the United States is involved in farming at this point. In fact, it's considered a statistically insignificant occupation uh, by the Labor Department. That's how few people do it. Most of us don't live in Nebraska or Iowa. We've got no idea what's involved. Most of us live in very urban environments, and we look down at our plates and we say, hey, is there a dead animal on my plate? And we don't realize that when we're eating wheat or rice or corn. We're eating a dead ecosystem, not just a dead animal, but a prairie, a forest, a river, a wetland. All of that has been destroyed in the service of agriculture. Um, and that's the problem, right? This is what we've been doing for 10,000 years with very little awareness of you know, the end game of all of it, which is collapse. I mean, there's 34 civilizations have existed. Every last one of them ends in collapse. And this is why, because it's an inherently destructive process. It's drawdown. It's drawdown of soil and water and trees and species and rivers. And at the end of the day, what you're left with is desert. And that's where we're headed.
0: Is there any kind of way to have sustainable agriculture or sustainable livestock Um to be able to support the population level that we have attained? Or do you think at this point that to be able to reverse the damage that we've done is um, going to be very difficult?
1: The, the, so right now there's seven plus billion people on the planet and there is no conceivable way to support them except for eating oil. And that's, there's 6 billion people who are only here because of fossil fuel. Um, that's the number of people that have been added to the planet since the year 1800, which is the beginning of the fossil fuel age. Um, we are going to have to face the facts if we intend to do anything about it. If we do nothing, we know where this ends, and it's very ugly. You know, you have failed states, <laughs> genocide, um, you know, the kinds of horrors that you know are already happening around the world because of the strains of ecological devastation and overpopulation. Um, That is inevitable, that is what collapse always brings with it. Um, That doesn't have to be where we end, I mean, there's no physical reason that we couldn't repair what we've destroyed while we reduce our numbers to something that's sustainable. Um, But in the meantime, um, no, there is no way forward except for um, retracting, you know, retracting our numbers and letting the wild come back. Now. The question is, so a lot of people, you know, we get confused. We throw this word around agriculture. What I mean when I say that is very specifically annual monocrops. So it would be plants that are, you know, only grow for a season and the same plant over and over, you know, across miles and miles. So that's annual and that's monocrop. That's that's exactly the opposite of what nature does. Nature makes what's called a perennial polyculture. So it's mostly perennial plants. It's plants that live a long, long time. And that's very important. There's a reason that that's important. Um, And a polyculture means many, many different kinds of plants. So it's a community. It's a dense community of many different species. And they all have a slightly different function. They all eat something slightly different. They all give back something slightly different. But that's what gives life its resilience is having um that amount of diversity you know per square meter and in a prairie it should be 25 plants per square meter which is a lot of different plants if you think about it and we've replaced all of that with just corn you know or wheat um the thing about perennial plants that if you really want to understand this you've got to understand their function there's three really important things that perennials do because they live a long time they have time to get really big and in a forest where there's enough water you see that in the form of trees right you think about how big a tree is like nobody could grow that big in one season right so they're not annuals they're perennials they live many many years and that's what gives them time to grow that big well in a prairie it's a little bit different most of the growth happens underground so um you know it's the same density you know of life but we're not necessarily used to thinking about it just because they're not as tall, but that's because there's not as much water. Anyway, both of these, there's prairies, tundras, savannas, um, forests. The, the nature has a lot of different kind of variations on this model, but it's the same idea. You've got many, many different kinds of plants. Most of them live a really long time, and, you know, their job is just to create more life. So the, the one of the things perennials have that annuals don't is really deep roots. And the reason they have those deep roots is because they've got time to build them. So number one, they hold the soil in place. They literally, it's the matrix. It's the web that is physically holding soil onto the planet, is, is those roots. Number two is water. Um, you know, if water falls on bare ground, and I'm sure everybody has seen some kind of a bare a field at some point in their life, it puddles, it pulls, it runs off, it destroys the surface of the soil because it can't it has no way to absorb into the soil. It has no way to actually penetrate the soil. What lets water do that is actually plant roots. And the perennial roots are, are very, very long. They're very deep. And so they, that allows, the, when it rains, it allows the water to actually get absorbed deeply, deeply down, down into the soil. And that's what recharges the water table, way down at the bottom, and then during dry periods when there's not as much rain, the roots then can draw that water up and make it available to the rest of the community of life. So without that, you end up with a desert. I mean, quite clearly, that probably doesn't need much explanation. You need that water, you need the water to enter the soil, you need it stored there, and you need a way to get it back up during the dry season. Um, And then the other thing that those roots do is, um, they can get so deep that they are down into the bedrock of the planet literally the rock and they can eat the rock okay now they do that in conjunction with various other creatures bacteria and whatnot but the take home point is without those deep roots we have no access to those minerals Um, the plants are the creatures that get those minerals and make them available to the rest of the living community you and I cannot eat rock We just can't do it. We don't have the capacity to do it. But plants can. They can access those minerals and they bring them up. But it's perennial plants. You have to have roots that are deep enough that they actually reach the rock. Annual plants just don't have it. They don't live long enough. They're only alive for one summer. So what they do is actually called mining. They mine the soil because they remove minerals and they have no way to replace them. So this is the problem. Uh, With these, with you know, year after year of annuals, is you're modding the soil, you're destroying the soil surface, and there's no way for for the water to uh, to recharge, you know, the water table, and you get just drier and drier summers because of it, and eventually it turns to desert. So that's the problem. I mean, in a nutshell, that's what agriculture does. So besides the biotic cleansing, it's a destructive process on its own. Um, so that's agriculture, which is just those annual monocrops. Now there are other ways that people have gotten food. So you have hunter-gatherers, which you know we can all sort of imagine that. Um, and there's variations on that, like there's some, you know, there's, there's about fishing, which some people separate out from hunter-gathering. I don't particularly. I think it's all basically the same. But then you have um, horticultural as well, and then you also have pastoralism. Um, I think that all of that actually is more or less the same thing because it all depends on a skeleton of perennial plants whether it's trees in a forest area whether it's wetlands in a coastal area or whether it's you know giant ruminants on a prairie somewhere you have this skeleton this backbone of a perennial polyculture. You've got long-lived plants, deeply rooted plants that are creating more and more soil, and then the animals are integrated into that as well as the humans. And all of those systems that I described are, are that. They are animals integrated into perennial polycultures. So whether it's pastoralists you know, that are herding sheep and sheep and goats and horses and whatever, whether it's hunter-gatherers, whether it's fishing people, that's the same pattern. And any of that can be done well. Any of that could last until the sun burns out. Because it's nature's pattern. It's 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 humans integrated into nature's pattern. It's agriculture that's the problem. It's when you take over mass quantities of land, you destroy the living community that's there. You only use it for humans to grow annual plants. You will end in collapse each and every time because it's drawdown and it's inherently destructive. So yes, we could absolutely have ways of life where we provide for human needs as well as the planet's needs. Um, you know, by simply returning to what we did for two and a half million years. a half million We were participants, we were not destroyers. Um, it's really what the planet needs us to do. It's honestly the only hope that we've got at this point is to repair the grasslands. It's the only thing that's gonna store the carbon that we've released is to let the soil come back and it's the plants that build the soil. So all of that could still happen, it's not too late. I have some great statistics about that if you need more hope, but that could be done. Um, and in terms of population, People do get very anxious about the subject and I understand why, but we don't actually need to be worried. Um, this is something that's really been studied very deeply. And the number one thing you can do, the, the best action you can take to drop the birth rate is actually to teach a girl to read. Um, when women and girls have even that much more power over their lives, they choose to have fewer children. In fact, all things being equal, most women will choose to have two children which is really interesting to me because, you know, we've all heard these sort of Malthusian ideas that our population just will keep getting bigger and bigger. It's not actually true. When we have some choice over the matter, most women actually want to have, we want to reproduce at replacement levels for our species. So it's actually in there. Like the, the, the thing that would be the best for us is actually the thing that's best for the planet. So I always try to emphasize with the people like this is not, Human beings versus the planet, it's human beings plus the planet. That it's not until everyone's human rights count that we're going to be able to do anything good for the planet. So it all comes as a piece. You know, we're either going to get it all right or it's all just going to go down. But, you know, this is not something that we need to be worried about. I I know that there's this sort of tremendous anxiety about it because there have been terrible human rights abuses done in the name of, quote, population control. You know, like China and the one-child policy, and it's just been a disaster for women. But that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about actually giving women and girls choices and power in their lives. And what happens then naturally is that the birth rate declines. Um, And that's even happened in some very, very conservative theocracies like Iran around the world where, where they figured out that this was true and they decided to, to just increase the birth rate and do a few other things like you know, make birth control free and um, do some education about it. And very naturally the population declined and pretty quickly. So our desire for children is actually fairly plastic and fairly flexible. And it's honestly these huge social and political systems that have pushed us in the other direction that we have overshot our land base so dramatically. But what this says to me is that it's very hopeful, you know, that if that if we take care of girls um, that we're taking care of the planet as well. And that in a pretty short period of time, we really could have a sustainable number of humans like this does not have to end in some horrible Mad Max dystopian scenario. We've all seen the movies. We all have the terrible, you know, visions in our head, but it doesn't have to go that way. The only reason it's going to end there is because of these vast political systems that are in love with their own power. I mean, honestly, I, this is the problem is I don't see any of the kind of major institutions around the globe heading in the right direction, but it's going to take all of us. You know, if we can turn that around, it's really not too late for our planet. Um, and the other very hopeful thing that I want to throw in here is that if we could repair even um, 75% of the world's grasslands, um, and they've been trashed by agriculture, let's be clear. But if we could do the repair, you know, and get the perennial grasses back and the large ruminants, you know, there's giant herds of ruminants that should be roaming those grasslands. If we could get everything back in place the way that it wants to be, within 15 years, we could actually drop um, the carbon to 330 parts per million, which is way under that 350 red line. It would only take 15 years because that's what grasses do. Grasses and ruminants together, they build soil and their basic building block is carbon. So this is why I say, you know, all my hope is in the girls in the grasses, because it's not too late for our planet. But these solutions are actually really simple. We just have to let life live. We just get out of the way. We could help it. We could help do that repair. But even if we just got out of the way, stopped taking what wasn't ours, all of that life would return because life wants to live Like really fiercely. It wants to come home. And all we have to do is let it. It's really not too late. I know a lot of this message sounds like so overwhelming with doom and gloom, but I'm honestly a very hopeful person. And I see that the solutions here are good for all of us. It's good for the bison, good for the prairies, good for the forest, good for the girls. It's good for all of us.
0: Yeah, and if anybody has gone to any land that has been overused or, you know, maybe a forest fire has come through or anything, you can see the regeneration that nature does all on its own over a period of time. You can see the regrowth and the rebuilding process um, right there in the making.
1: I have actually talked to people who, after reading my work and a few other you know, people sort of in line with the things I say, I don't want to take total credit for this, but you know, then they have inherited some giant chunk of family land and they, they don't plow it. They don't plant it to core and they just let it try to come back. And honestly, in the first year they have seen birds that have not been seen for a hundred years in the wow. first year. Yeah. It's like, just let life come back. It will do it. It's a life is an extraordinary thing. It really is.
0: So I have a couple questions left for you, Lier, Um, and one of them has to do with the movie What the Health. Have you seen that Mm -hmm. movie? Yes. Yeah, I'm sure you have the same feelings about it as a lot of people. Um, They definitely have an agenda in that movie, and they're definitely pushing veganism, Uh, but one of the things that they do bring, uh, light to, which I think could be kind of a good point is, uh, the meat industry and all the CAFO operations that, uh, control most of the, the meat industry. Mm-hmm. And so there's people like Joel Salatin out there that have more sustainable, um, uh, meat practices going on. And obviously this isn't agriculture, it's a little bit different, but what do you think about those type of practices for, um, our community and our populations.
1: Yeah, I think that's um, the one good thing about that movie is that it does try to expose more people to factory farming, to the realities of what's happening to animals in factory farms. And these are sentient beings and they are being tortured. And I do think that anybody, you know, with even a little bit of a conscience should know that. This is just wrong, and we need to stop it. So I think that's something we can all agree on, right? The question is, you know, what next? You know, what other ways are there for people to get food? And are any of them better for animals and better for the planet? And you mentioned Joel Salatin, and I would say, yes, that is a much better way for all of us. He has built so much topsoil that, in fact, he's had to raise the fence posts on his farm. That's unheard of in this world. I mean, he's really produced a miracle. And all he's done is let nature take its course. He's integrated um, ruminants with grasses, and that's what nature does. So it's a perfectly sustainable system. So to walk everybody through this, um, we're going to take one acre of land, theoretically, and I'm going to show you two different things that can happen, two different things people can do to provide food. Um, So on the one land, one acre, we're going to do what's happening right now. So we clear everything off it, right? We take off all the plants. That means all the animals have to go: insects, mammals, birds, everybody gone. It means that the rain cannot enter the soil anymore. It means the water table is going to be destroyed. It means all kinds of topsoil is going to wash away every time it rains. Until nearby rivers, the rivers are going to die. No more fish in the rivers. I mean, ultimately, we're looking at a desert. But in the meantime, for a few generations tops 2,000 years, um, you can get some corn out of it. So you plant it to corn, and then at the end of the year, you harvest that corn, and the corn gets shipped down the road on a truck (laughs) to essentially a city. So you've got concrete floors, steel buildings, and inside are a bunch of absolutely miserable cows. You're going to feed them this completely unnatural diet of corn, which kills them by the way, they can only last about 60 days in those places because the food is just completely wrong. They're not meant to eat corn. They're meant to eat grass. So they're going to have holes in their stomachs. Their livers are going to be toxified. It's just, it's a terrible life for them. They're miserable the whole time. Eventually they're slaughtered. Food goes to people, well, what do you know, the amino acid profile is completely wrong, there's not enough tryptophan, for instance, the fatty acid profile is wrong, way too many omega-6s, so the people who eat it are also going to get sick. So you've got dead and dying land, um, You know, ecological collapse, you've got really sick ruminants living in completely unnatural conditions, and then you've got some sick humans. So that's what we're doing right now, and I just don't see this as a way forward for anyone. I will also add to the vegans who are listening. You could take the cows out of this picture entirely. You would still have death and destruction. You would still ultimately have a desert on that land. You would still have um, extirpation of species. You would still have destruction of the local rivers. All of that is true. It doesn't really matter where that corn goes. Um, It's still not the model that nature wants. It's still not a sustainable way forward. But anyway, that's the first acre. So now we're going to take another acre of land. I'm going to show you the different way. So you leave that land in that perennial polyculture. You leave those grasses in place. Now you've got a home for all the creatures that have evolved for millions of years to live on grasslands. So you've got butterflies and you've got snakes and you've got ground-dwelling birds and you've got migrating birds and all the way up from bacteria to the charismatic megafauna. You've got some large ruminants, perhaps a bison. On that same acre of land, you can raise one bison um, and... At the end of the year, the bison is harvested, and now you can support one human um, on the meat from that bison. Um, and at the end of the year, the end of the life of whatever, that human as well, uh, we also get eaten. I mean, it's it's not like it stops with us. We are part of that circle. The food chain is not really a pyramid. The trophic period makes sense to talk about in terms of energy and how it accumulates, but that's not actually how life works. It, it is actually a cycle, which is to say that all of us are going to die, and we're going to be eaten by all those creatures, great and small, ultimately. Every last molecule of your body will be reabsorbed into that system, taken back up, and used for the next the next creatures that live there. So that's what it is, is a cycle. Um, and that cycle could go on forever. That could go on until the sun burns out, and every year you could come back, and the only thing different is you're going to find a little more topsoil, which is to say a little more life, a little more resilience. So those are our options on this planet. We can be the death that's part of the destruction of everything, which is model one, or we can reintegrate ourselves. We can participate once more, be part of the death that's the cycle of life. There is no way out of death. I wish that there was. It was an incredibly hard thing for me to face as a vegan, but there isn't. You know, Once you take life on this planet, you will have to eat, and that does mean death for other creatures. doesn't matter what creature you are you know plants eat dead things too we all do that's what it is so those are our only options we can be the death that's killing everything or we can part of the death that is is feeding that cycle Um, and so I'm gonna pick option two here because I want life on this planet to continue and I hope that everybody can try to look at the bigger picture, because it's not just about the what is dead on your plate, it's about everything that died to get that food there. And it's only in asking that question that we're going to come to some better answers.
0: It truly is a circle of life. And that's a really interesting point that you made there, taking the same plot of land, and it, you take two different paths with it. It's pretty powerful. So one final question for you. Earlier, you mentioned that a lot of the, uh, the vegan groups try to target uh, teenagers, um, in particular women around 16 years old. Um, say you had the opportunity to speak in front of a group of young uh, teenage women that are thinking about becoming vegan and you have two minutes to change their mind. What would you tell them?
1: I would tell them that they are on the right track in terms of values, that the only thing that's going to get us to the world that we need is if everybody embraces compassion and justice and sustainability, and if those values include all of us, you know, from the the biggest to the least of us. It's got to include the charismatic megafauna, and it also has to include the bacteria. It has to include the plankton in the ocean. It has to include creatures we can't even see because they are the ones who are doing the basic work of life. We owe everything to them, and that's what we're destroying when we do agriculture. So I would try to impart upon them that um, they are on the right track to be questioning factory farming and to understand that their food is very political, that it's being created Uh, by giant systems of power that really have gone rabid with destruction. And they are right to question that. But there's a much bigger problem out there than just factory farming. So in two minutes, it's hard to walk everybody through all of this, perennials, annuals, you know, factory, you know, all of that, industrial agriculture, agriculture itself, what all that means. But I would really try to impress upon them that um, it's not the values that are the problem, it really is larger information. It's a whole systematic way of thinking that goes. we have to go back 10,000 years to the beginning of the destruction, not just the most egregious forms of it right now because that's where it begins is with agriculture
0: itself. That's great. Lear, I love how honest you are. Everything that comes out of your your mouth is just straight from your heart and to come from a vegan b- background where people are very stuck in their ways and to be able to break free and to be honest with yourself and the world and to speak your your truth, that's, um, that's a really hard thing to find nowadays. A lot of people are scared to uh, break out of those type of shells and to be who they truly need to be. Well,
1: I appreciate that. Um, I will say that <laughs> it's not like I came to it because I was questioning, I came to it because my health collapsed, and that's just the truth. You know, I would have gone on being that kind of a fanatic if there had been any choice about it, and that's kind of scary, you know, to learn about yourself. But um, it does mean I can speak to other people who are in the same situation. So, if you do find that, you know, your your health is beginning to fall apart and there are questions nibbling around the edges about what you're doing. It is worth broadening out once more. Like you already made the choice to be a vegan. That's a hard choice. You have the courage clearly of your convictions. So don't get stuck there. Keep asking those questions. Keep trying to get to the bottom of what is really destroying this planet and what really is best for animals in the earth because the answers are not as easy as you may think.
0: So Lear, where can people find you online? You have your website lierkeith.com and I know you have the book, The Vegetarian Myth what else have you done and where else can people find you?
1: Yeah, it's sort of a joke. Like the best thing is, oh, go to my website. The joke is that my name is really strange, so it's hard <laughs> to spell. <laughs> so anyone who's listening, if you don't have paper and pencil in front of you, Easiest thing is just to google vegetarian myth because there's only one book by that name and I wrote it So you will find it Um, if you're more clever and you can remember Lear Keith That's great Lear is French So it's Pierre with an L but that tends to slip from people's minds if they're not writing it down But you can find me vegetarian myth also. I have lots of YouTube videos lots of my lectures are up online so you can find me talking about this subject and I'll whole bunch of others related. Um, So if you're intrigued, you know, there's definitely ways to find out more without having to buy my book. Also, public libraries are wonderful places. My mother was a librarian, so I'll just give that push. Go to your library. Um, (laughs) And yeah, I have a website so you can see what I'm doing and what I'm up to and other books that I've written as well.
0: Awesome. We'll have links to all of that in the show notes too, so people can find you a little easier that way. Thank you, Liara, for coming on. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to come and talk with us all about your journey through veganism and um, just how much your mind has opened up since then.
1: Well, thanks for having me and thanks for doing a show.
0: All right. If you enjoyed this episode of the Summit for Wellness podcast, please go to iTunes and subscribe to our channel and leave us a rating and review. They really do help us out and they help um, other people to be able to find this show. And we will See everybody next time.